Quiet on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. From the studio of WHUPLP Hillsboro, welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo. Over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, one more kiss, dear. Screenwriter Hampton Fancher is with us. Welcome. Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Robert Malazzo here with you every week live on whupfm.org. Evergreen. <laughs> Memories of green for today. iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. We have a website, murmurradio.com. Social handles at msfmurmur. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at MSF Murmur. MSF is the Modern School Film. I am the founder of the Modern School Film every week here live with you on Murmur. And subscribe, download, pass it along. If you go to our website, mind you, you'll see a button that says don't click here. So that means you click here. Do you see that? Do you see how that works? See how I did that? (laughs) Ed, when you go to the next page... It will say, do you have a murmur? If you have a topic you want me to cover, I will take the topic or the question and I will marry it with a guest and I will give you full credit. I I won't leave you hanging. I won't sell you out, man. (laughs) Murmurradio.com. Welcome back. Today on the show, Hampton Fancher. Screenwriter Hampton Fancher started as an actor, became a screenwriter. The rest is history that we're living the history again, and I want to relive part of it with you. We don't, I don't like to go through making of movies so much because I think that's sort of a hat on a hat. You could do that. We could do that. If you go to our website and you want us to do that, we'll do that. I'll do that. But I want to do things a little differently today as we are going to go through a little history on Blade Runner. Blade Runner is back, which implies it was ever gone. Let's leave that aside. 2004, I believe, was the year I was teaching filmmaking in Florence, Italy. Sounds like an awful job. It was. (laughs) 
I was teaching, and it was one of the last classes. It was the first class I had ever taught there. It was actually the first film class I had ever taught, period. One of the students, it was the last day of class, and, and you know, teachers tend to not know how to use time well, early teachers. They don't know as well how to place lessons and how long they'll take and that sort of thing, and that's part of the, the learning curve. It was the last day of class, and I, to be honest, I had run out of... I'd run a day short of the of my plan, so it was actually an hour short. I had an, literally an hour on the at the end of the day, last class, no sin. I said, "Hey, is there, does anyone have any questions? Just general questions about anything we've covered, but it could be go beyond the classroom." Students stood up. So yeah, stood up. Believe it or not, raised their hand, <laughs> which wasn't necessary at that point, but. And asked, how do you become a filmmaker? And it was an amazing question. It may be the best question I was ever asked. And I answered actually really quickly. I said, you make a film. A little laughter in the, in the room, and I wasn't joking. I think that's how you become a filmmaker. The, the student didn't seem to be satisfied, so I took a, a beat and I paused. And... I wanted a, a short answer, or, or as short an answer, because I, I don't think words would answer. Uh, more words don't answer the question more robustly. So I said, and I said to the student, "All it takes, whatever it is, all it takes is one person to believe in you." As I've gone on and studied film more, uh, in terms of this work, is is my film study and worked in film and done a lot of discussions with people about film. That's sort of the Oliver Sacks answer to how do, you, how do you make a film? How do you become a filmmaker? You need one person to believe in you. Now that can extend to other walks of life or trades, but it's, it's, the, it's the core nucleus. And as we talked to Hampton Fancher today, Hampton was the original screenwriter, then became a credited co-screenplay co co writer on the original Blade Runner and an executive producer on the original. And now the film is back for a new cinematic chapter. And once again, he's the co-screenwriter. And if you know the history of, that starts with Philip K. Dick in 1968, and his beginning preoccupations, which we'll cover today, that led to the novel, 200-page novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?, if you trace that all the way literally to today, and today defined by whenever you're hearing this, th this is this this chunk of of protoplasm is a study of all it takes is one person to believe in you. Now, I don't teach luck. I don't think it's teachable. Many teachers, and I'm not one of these teachers, but many teachers believe if you can't learn it, it can't be taught, and I, I don't believe in that. Resolutely, but I do think luck is something I don't usually, I don't ever bring it into a classroom except to reject it. So I want to take out anyone, anyone's common definition of luck, I want to take out of the talk today and I want to take it out of this lesson of how do you get a film made or how, how do you do, how do you get something made or how do you do anything maybe? I don't know. All you need is one person to believe in you. Now it may be a series of one persons insert your David Peoples joke here, <laughs> Blade Runner fans and non-Blade Runner fans. You can insert the joke confidently, trust me. <laughs> That's a really funny Blade Runner joke. Now, Blade Runner Legion. 
I've tried to embed it in this show as frequently as I can in terms of media and messaging. But today is is the hole and the donut. It's the hat on the hat on the hat. It's the new hat. The new duster. The Blade Runner duster is back. Hampton, we are here today listening, and I am here in this seat because of Hampton Fancher. I will spare you that today. It may come over, come, come out in a little drip today and drips and drabs as we go along murmur in, in perpetuity perhaps. But this man, and, and whether or not you want to be convinced of that statement, let's just sit in it for a second. I'm saying to you, listener, that, well, listeners, that Hampton Fancher is the reason I'm here now, if you step back, are you saying, is Hampton Fancher your favorite artist or an artist who inspired you? Yes. But does that mean I knew of him when he inspired me? No. Does that mean uh, it was him that inspired me? No. But it was this tale. And yes, sorry, Hampton did inspire me. But I want to I rearrange the classical definition, the classic Gestaltian cause and effect of if you do something, that author of the thing will inspire the recipient. He knows, and when you hear Hampton today, he's such a good guy, he wanted to remain invisible as possible and, and still does. And, and he doesn't you know, go on record a lot. And it's not because of some Howard Hughesian reluctance. It's, this, is, this is his work that started with him. And had so many fascinating moments. And we can't, I can't possibly get them in all in one episode today. But I want to keep emblemizing within, if I can, if the talk goes that way, that it really takes a series of one beliefs to get you to do that thing or to create that thing. And in this case, filmmaking. And today is a case study because we're talking about a film. But it bears repeating that a series of beliefs and, yes, disbeliefs in the sense of luck, but that core principle, if someone else believes in the thing you are doing, that reflective surface, surface is necessary. You cannot create in a cave. You can draw on a cave, but if you want to be a, a cave artist that makes a living from your cave artistry, you must invite people into that cave. Today's example uh, of cave drawing is is opposite of that and you'll hear at the very beginning of the story as we go through the historical dramaturgy of Blade Runner then and now the fortune could we call it fortune I don't like that word either because it, it 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 implies a selectivity that is beyond our control let's just talk about let's just let's just say the waves of time were crashing and crashing is a good thing. That moment where the waves hit the sand is a beautiful thing. It, it creates foam. It creates jotsam, um, flotsam, jetsam. Is that right? I always think I say that wrong, like a spoonerism. It creates a smell. It creates a foam. It brings new information in, takes new information out. It, it recedes. It, 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 it interrupts. It washes away the sandcastle. Robert Altman called filmmaking like building a sandcastle. You build it, the tide comes and washes it away. That's why his production company was Sandcastle 5. Blade Runner is not a sandcastle. The architect is. He may have actually set out to build a, a sandcastle with Blade Runner. And yes, is Philip K. Dick, the man I'm speaking of, is Hampton Fancher, the man I'm speaking of. It's not important who was 
who was their first, you know, um, it, it is important, but I always think of something Red Arback said about the Boston Celtics. He said when players would complain to him about playing time, he would always tell them it's not who starts it, it's who finishes it. Today, we have the man who's been there the whole time on the case, like an anthropologist, Hampton Fancher today on Murmur. Now this. In the case of androids, um, dreaming of electric sheep, he sets it all in, in a world which is, is very uh, mundane. And his feet, despite the fact that his brain is floating in, in, in the heavens, his feet are firmly on the ground all the time. And he has a character who is killing these almost human beings to raise money to buy himself a real animal, because all he can afford at the moment, because the world has reached the stage where almost all the real animals are out of existence and only the rich can afford real animals, or the um, the upper middle class can. And he's owns an electric sheep, which looks just like an electric sheep, I mean, looks like a real sheep, but he's terrified of being found out by his neighbors that he can only afford an electric sheep and not a real sheep. Now, that's a wonderful, wonderful situation. So his job is to kill almost human beings, to get money so he can buy, eventually, what becomes is an ostrich. He buys an ostrich. And then the great turnaround in that book is that the girl he falls in love with, who is not quite a human being, but he's in love with her despite that, when he reveals to her the truth of who she is, she's so outraged that she goes up and throws his ostrich off the roof of the building and kills it. Now, that's, that's wonderful. <laughs> that's all I can say. It's great. The idea, which is always, I thought, was central to what he's about, is what makes a human being. How do you define humanity or humanness? And, and it's that, that, and that's the battle that goes on in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep between these androids who are almost exactly like a human being, and the only way you can tell is that they fail the empathy test, which is very hard to spot, and only experts can, but on every other level, they appear, they, they behave like human beings, but they're not. My relationship with the United States has always been a very bad one. Um, it has always seemed to me that I was about to be arrested by the American police for some obscure reason. And perhaps that's because of reading Kafka's The Trial. That, that book influenced me very much, you know, where, where someone is arrested for a crime and he has never told what crime he has committed. You've got to take into account that in the United States, to be an intellectual, to be a writer, is to wear a sign on your back saying, I am an enemy of the state. There is such an anti-intellectual attitude in America. It's incredible, the suspicion that the authorities have of what they used to call eggheads. Uh, it was a term of derision, and the term originated in Nazi Germany. Most people don't know this. I, I happen to know this because I did a lot of research into Nazi Germany for my novel, Man in My Castle. The term egghead was used by the, by the uh, Spoon of, of Thailand, S.A. It referred to the fact that when they beat up people uh, who were defenseless, their skulls cracked so readily against the pavement that the term egghead was evolved by the Sturmab Thailand, and that term was carried over into the United States without any knowledge of its origin. However, the fact that that is the origin of the term egghead, which is the term used for American intellectuals, that origin 
tells a great deal about the kind of people who would use such a term. man who shot Liberty Vance, a reporter, says to Jimmy Stewart, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Well, what if the fact is actually more interesting and sexier and more important and more useful than the legend? That's the case for Blade Runner, then and now. And if that's true, then the original sheriff of all this yeah, it's Philip K. Dick, but also uh, a young gun um, who we're going to welcome on the show today. Um, he famously wanted his name off the film, and they punished him by making an, him an executive producer <laughs> instead of giving him a raise. Uh, no, he actually went on to be a credited screenwriter and credited um, executive producer on Blade Runner, and he's back for more for whatever reason we're going to ask. Please welcome to the Modern School of Film and to Murmur Radio, one of the original skin jobs, Mr. Hampton Fancher. Malazzo. Milazzo, si. Roberto Malazzo. Si, va bene. Hampton, wel- <laughs> welcome to the show, man. That's pretty good. God. <laughs> Do you do That's you consider funny. do you consider yourself a skin job? <laughs> I never, you know, I, I I'm sure uh, I I was always envious of the brilliance of that term. I mean, it's uh, I mean that the 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 term is so perfect. But I think it was David Peoples who came up with. I'm sure it was David Peoples who came up with that because I w- I was calling them androids. Right. And uh, you know, I was uh, I've never been involved in science fiction. I don't know anything about it. Never read anything. And and nor comic books and and David Peoples was you know educated and all that as well as many other things. But uh, so I, I, I guess it was him. And I boy, what a great thing to say. And replicants too. I think he came up with uh, because I was just saying androids of the the term. You know, so mechanical sounding and you know, so soulless in a way. In the original source material, do androids dream of electric sheep? He calls them Andes, right? Is yeah, it, I call them Andes too. Yeah. Yeah. Was that in the in your early drafts? Were you calling them Andes, or is it? Yeah, it was. I didn't. Re- I mean, I never. I didn't care for the book. I didn't. Yeah. Relate to the book, and on a you know the way you love a book. I didn't. It wasn't 
that wasn't my relationship with it. I think I only read it once. And uh, although I used it in the original, I guess, first or second drafts, um, <clears throat> I, I used a lot of the book. I used dialogue from the book. I like the idea. I mean, I like the, the, the uh, Deckard being a bureaucrat wearing glasses and all that, you know, a paper pusher sort of guy. Uh, and it wasn't until I think the third draft that I really switched into the Robert Mitchum mode and realized, <laughs> and, you know, Raymond Chandler was informing right. my, my inspirations. But D- did Ridley ever read the book? I mean, no, f- he never right. read the book. Speaking of facts and legends, I caught that, that he never read the book. Has he ever read the book in all this time? Like not no. even in an airport lounge, just bored out I mean, of his I mind. Can't, I, I think he's, I mean, I, I, my, that's my educated guess. Yeah. Educated because I, Ridley is the busiest man in the world. He is. And when he's not busy, he's asleep, you know, yeah. or having a good time at dinner. <laughs> yeah. uh, What's well, funny, you know, talking about skin jobs, speaking with Hampton Fancher, Philip K. Dick talking about the movies, he said um, when he goes to the movies, he always feels as if I'm in a cheap porno show when I watch a movie. So he's so I'm conflicted about the process. So actually he compared, you know, when I think of skin jobs, I it, there's something kind of cool and sleazy and pornographic about it. I'm guessing Phil Dick would have appreciated that. I'm sure he would have loved it. I mean, <laughs> other guys even more. So I mean, it's a great it's a you know, it's a it's a great term. It's William Burroughs. And I don't think people was a big fan of William Burroughs, but yeah, it's a William Burroughs kind of feel to that term. It's cool how much literary DNA is in the original Blade Runner, and it's not just Burroughs, but it's also Ray Bradbury. Can you talk a little bit about how you ran into Bradbury? And well, Ray Bra- Bradbury yeah. was the... If, there, if, if I hadn't... If Ray Bradbury hadn't been walking down the other side of the street the day I was walking down Rodeo, I think Rodeo, in Beverly Hills with Barbara Hershey, uh, it, there would be no Blade Runner. Isn't that amazing? I That's amazing. to find Philip Dick. Yeah. Huh? That's amazing, man. Just like the little yeah. tipping point. Sorry, but t- talk about this tipping point. You had tried to meet Dick, no dice, and then you run into Ray Bradbury. Talk a little bit about that. It was a friend of mine, Jim Maxwell, my oldest friend, who when I called him, when I got that money, I said, I think science fiction is going to come on pretty soon, and maybe that's what I should try to do. He said, read, and he told me to read the Dick book. I never heard of it. I read the book and I saw the saw that that was a good idea because it was a kind of a cowboy through line, you know. Here's a here's a cop looking for androids, and and that was something I never had been able to do in anything I was trying to create, you know, you know, for a movie, try to write or produce or something. Was that through line? I thought that's really simple, A to B to C, and uh, that's what I saw in the book, and then. Then I just, I'd never done it before. I tried to find Philip K. Dick. I didn't know what to do. I called people, and I couldn't find him. And then finally it was his agent in New York was the only way. And he seemed elusive and strange. And so I, I flew to New York, and, uh, and I was also going to New York to meet uh, Burroughs, who I, who I was told he wouldn't meet with me. And he did. Bukowski, I found in the phone book. I was trying to also <laughs> that makes lure sense. Bukowski into. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you met Bukowski at the post office. That would have been a hell of a story. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, what was I saying? We, uh, uh, well, we're getting to the idea of you literally oh, so running into. So I flew yeah. to New York to try to get to try to get Philip K. Dick, and I meet his agent. And his agent said, "We don't know where he is either." <laughs> and I said, "Fuck it. Okay, I'm out of here." Because I met, I met with Burroughs. I was happy about that. I'd already met Bukowski and was going to meet him again, so I was happy. But then I'm walking, I'd forgotten about Dick, and I was walking down the street and with Barbara Hershey, and 
And someone was yelling my name. It was traffic. It was an afternoon. <laughs> I couldn't hear it exactly. Then I look across, and I see this kind of smallish guy kind of flapping in the wind, going, Hampton, Hampton. And, and I, you know, I, I wasn't interested. I didn't recognize him. Kept walking, but he kept doing it. And Barbara said, you know, have a little pity, man. Talk to that guy. He's trying to get your attention. Yeah. So I, from her cue, really, I ran across the street because he was insistent. And I ran across the street to him. And I said, what? And he said who he was. And then, wow, Ray Bradbury. And I was really impressed. And I went, whoa. <laughs> then I remembered that wow. I had done a, a play. We were, worked on a play together. Me as an actor, him as a director. Right. Uh, he was going to do Moby Dick in space. And we had a, <laughs> he'd gotten a soundstage at Goldwyn, and we were rehearsing in there. He'd chosen me to play one of the parts, I don't remember. So, you know, we knew each other, but I'd forgotten him. And uh, so I was talking to him, and then we were, then we were parting. I didn't want to say, hey, what's your phone number or something, but I was tempted, you know, because I just wanted to know him better. But then I, I was walking away. I said, hey, wait a minute. Do you know a guy named Philip K. Dick? He said, yeah. I said, I can't find him anywhere. Do you know anything about where I could find him? And, he, and then he brings out his phone book and then writes on a piece of paper Philip's number. It was in Orange County somewhere in Pomona, I think, teaching. And, uh, and that was that. And so I called Philip and, you know, well, the it, rest it, of it we know. Well, yeah, the rest of it we know. And it's, it's cool, all the little heroes we meet in our life along the way. And, you know, you said once about how we all kind of made Blade Runner. And I, I believe that. And your humility along the way, which we're going to get to, I find it humility and maturity, even though at moments maybe Ridley Scott and Mike Daly didn't. Um, I thought you were incredibly mature along the way. And you were the true first architect. But let's talk a little bit about Phil, Phil Dick for a second, because I find him fascinating. Uh, he died at 54, which is amazing for a guy who we think so vastly of, you know. And Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, a 200-page novel, essentially, he wrote in 1968 the, the height of Vietnam War, and it was based on an, a Nazi officer's journal. And one of the entries in the journal was him remarking, the screams of children keep me awake at night. So Dick realized this man can't be human to, you know, to go through with this, these, this, these actions. Um, did you ever get a hold of the journal? Was that ever of interest to you, uh, Hampton? No, I mean, it's interesting, but, but I'd forgotten about it. You just brought it up just now. Mm. I, I don't read about it in passing. I can't remember where, when, how, what. Uh, way in the back, but uh, but when you said it just now, I thought, well, I mean, the crux of the whole thing is empathy. Yeah, and and there it is. I mean, it's right. That's the kernel of it, right there. Is this to be an empathy test, as Terrell famously says? Yeah, it is. <laughs> it, it's the Voight Camp idea. It's brilliant. It truly is. It's funny, you know. You met him in an, you met Dick in an interesting time, and I'm sure you had your own interesting meditative moments with him. He attempted suicide in 1972. Um, he in, in 1974 through 1980, and this is all on record, he claimed he had these divine visitations that actually included God himself at some point. And he was writing a 8,000-page document to explain his experiences. What state of mind was Dick in when you met him? Meeting Dick was, uh, I'd met with him three times right. in, his in his apartment. Very, very mm, kind of under-middle-class apartment building two stories you know cottage cheese ceilings and all that and uh he was married had that had a very an infant who was standing uh, at least the first time i met him standing in a uh, a, a fenced off 
dining room, small dining room, watching everything. He looked like an overgrown baby. And I, I thought that was funny because, you know, Dick, science fiction, and this kid looked like some kind, some, some kind of fabrication, you know. He was too big to be as, <laughs> as young as he was, you know. He never didn't make a noise. He just watched it with wow. his hands, like, curled around the cage, you know, like a monkey. How interesting. And, uh, and, uh, and, the, and his, Dick's wife never said a thing. She just sat on the couch and watched and listened. Um, and Dick... Uh, very self-centered, very egocentric, very intelligent, fun, uh, not not generous in a in any way, uh, not curious. I mean, about me. Uh, assumed I, my assumption about his assumption was that he thought I was some Hollywood dickhead, right? You know, some handsome guy who's a producer, cigar guy, you know. And uh, and I wasn't anything like that, and so I was thinking he was misperceiving me at every turn, and uh, yet he, I think, pretended to like me, uh, or maybe he really did. I think he didn't, and uh, but we, but he always went, he liked the he liked my he I could, I'm a good listener, and I think he liked that, and I also was a reader, and so we did discuss things. We discussed. I remember Conrad, uh, as in Joseph, and. And some other things, and we had a good time, kind of. Yeah. But I never ha- had any warmth from him, and he was very elusive. But well, I mean, I'm, excuse me, I'm going afield here. But what you're talking about, I thought was phony. Hmm. I thought he was pretending to be crazy hmm. just for showmanship. Hmm. And then I realized later he probably was really crazy Interesting. because he would do crazy things. But yet there was he would do tacit things with me too. I mean, we're like, you know, certain subtleties would occur, and I would be aware of them, and he would acknowledge that he was aware of them also by a glint in his eye or a nod or something. You know, I was very, you know, we did have something, I don't know, intellectively in common, you know, but he was also, he he, he was acting sometimes like he was getting messages from the beyond, you know, and I thought it was bullshit. I mean, I thought he was fucking around. Like, a, but fucking around like a crazy person would like, whoa, right. he's wait, like he's saying, hold, hold on a second, you know, not literally saying it, but, but pausing in his conversation to get a message from the sky. I'm uh, flashing on Marty Sheen and uh, Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now. Did Phil, did Philip Dick ever say that uh, you were a grocery clerk sent to collect a bill? Um, you know, did did he think you would come to kill him like Kurtz? Well, it was like it was. It was I mean, it was twice I had a friend with me, a woman, and uh, and I did that because I knew that it would temper him. Although he was looking at me all the time, he was acting for the woman, and uh, and I felt he was a bit. You know, I, I took him as a naive that way. Mm. A naive. You know, he seemed. Um, you know, like a absent-minded professor, to, you know, showing off for a, yeah. a, a, a glamour girl. Yeah, yeah. You know, and he really had not a clue. Didn't have much experience that way. You know, he like he, he had like a tight belt on, and his belly was too big for that. Kind of like a golfer, you know, or something. <laughs> the, the, and, I, and I thought of him yeah. as, a, as an innocent in a way, or like almost like a, a, a precocious businessman who didn't have a lot of experience with with the with the wider world and especially sexually. Like I said, I never read him. I didn't. I mean, I knew I knew that book, but I didn't. I, I wasn't a fan. 
I hadn't gone deeply, you know, I, didn't, I hadn't read any Jonathan Lethem essays on Philip K. Dick, you right, know, right, but right. yet I knew he was really smart. Now, he, he and, wanted uh, you, in the course of the conversation, did he want to turn you more towards Flow My Tears, the policeman said? No, he, he wanted to turn me towards Ubik. Oh, Ubik. He pushed it, yeah, yeah, because he never admitted that he didn't have, you know, there wasn't a chance I could get androids because... He'd already optioned it to a French company. I found right. out after Jean-Pierre Gorin, right? Who later? Yeah. So that at that yeah. year, that was it was gone. So here I was talking, you know, trying to always come back to that subject, and he wouldn't. He wouldn't say no. He wouldn't say yes. But he didn't. But he eluded it. Yeah. Yeah. And and then would come back, and then he finally gave me. I had it until not too long ago. He gave me a nice little paperback of Ubik, and he said this one. Maybe you should try this. This is better. How interesting. And, he, and, and well, Bla- yeah. Blade Runner ended up being his first film made, in a sense. Yeah. But he had been through yeah. the mill. He called. He actually called Hollywood an android factory, uh, which is kind of an interesting comparison, uh, speaking with Hampton Fancher. Um, I, I, I want to look at talk a little bit about in Act Two, a little bit about your draft, and then into the, the film itself a little bit. Um, and the book is... It's funny. One of Phil Dick's uh, advocations was he was a DJ in a classical music station, and I believe the original novel is has a lot of opera house settings in it. Um, you know, this bottomed out San Francisco, infertile humans are living, no, an- very few animals, um, and Deckard wanted a sheep, and we can get to all that. Um, but your first draft aired more towards a, almost like a theatrical presentation that there was really no outside world. Are you are you in touch with that memory that that the oh yeah? So talk about that first literal vomiting of the book onto a page. What was the impetus to theatricalize it and flatten it? Is it was that just your experience as a writer, or is that you thought the best translation at the time? Although I was trying to be a writer and I'd been writing for a while, I I was also very much an actor. Yeah. And right. I thought of it as I, I was thinking of 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 the conflict and and duplicity and and the 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 you know the the dialectical aspect of of characters exchanging confusions and ideas and demands and all that. that that's what I was writing dialogue and in in rooms. I didn't care about the action. Uh, so much outside the rooms. I was, cons- you know, it was more noirish rooms for me. Right. And it wasn't until the third draft when, you know, I'd had a, another director before before Ridley came. Right. And uh, Robert Robert Mulligan. Mulligan right. and, and when Ridley came in, it was a. I was working on. A, I think that was became the third draft or fourth maybe. And um, that's when it started to expand into an external world and all, but. So I wasn't thinking about that. I was just thinking. I was thinking about a little movie. I wanted to make a tiny movie, <laughs> right, right, uh, with you know, in rooms, right, and just and characters. And that's how it started for me. What? Real impetus, yeah. aside from empathy, yeah. was uh, was the the disappearance of animal life on this planet. You know, yeah. it was ecology. Yeah, and that word that was a new word for me well, in nineteen seventy. You know, in the late seventies, everybody. I think we all from the sixties, acid droppers, etc. And 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 Philip and I had that in common too. But I think that I was, you know, I was very keyed into the idea of looking up at a tree that didn't have any birds in it. Yeah. You know, and I was, and I was, you know, it made me cry. It made me angry. It made me, it fucked me up. 
And so I was writing, I mean, that was the sincere anchor basis foundation of, of, you know, being able to continue writing uh, for the year it took me to write that thing. You're talking about this, I'm thinking of Silent Running, the Doug Trumbull film uh, with Bruce mm-hmm. with Bruce Dern, which is almost a documentary. Uh, we're speaking with Hampton Fancher. I, I want to bring in, you know, into our act two here, the Ridley Scott of it all, not to drill down too deeply, but there's some really interesting widgets I want to get your, your thought on. Uh, Ridley rid, had first, and correct any of this, man, obviously you're the expert. Um, Ridley had read the Android script and it, he had once turned it down, but what's interesting, he said even in turning it down that he couldn't get at, get it out of his head. And I believe that. But honestly, man, I know the Philip K. Dick of it all, but I I think you're the reason we're all here talking about this, but I'll, I won't even tell you. I won't tell you that to your face. I won't tell you that. That I'll never tell you that directly, right? Exactly. Um, but he couldn't get that out of his head. He was working on Dune, actually, and his brother had passed, and he didn't want to wait around two more years in prep for Dune, so he needed something to kind of, as you say, to kind of work on, in a sense, and it led him back to to uh, Android, which became Blade Runner, et cetera, and also was Gotham City at some point. Do you remember that, that Ridley wanted it to call, be called Gotham City? Do you recall that? Mm-hmm. Bob Kane, the creator of Batman, said, no dice. Another coincidence, like the Ray Bradbury thing, yeah. is that w- when when I first, you know, when Michael Dealey, the producer, first read the script, he loved it, and then and then he his first choice was Ridley Scott. We'd all just seen Alien, and uh, recently, and you know, probably Michael knew Ridley, uh, Brits, etc. But and I said no way, and I was a producer, so <laughs> I, I had some, I, you know, had some sway. I said, I, I, I will, no, Why? no, I want this to be an actor's director. That's oh. like I love Alien, but right. it's not the, it's not that kind of movie, and so no, and so we had, you know, some arguments about that, but I, I turned it down, and uh, and I beat him. You know, that's why Robert, Robert Mulligan finally came, right, and. When he left, then the the studio we were, I think we were with Filmways. They went they went belly they went up. belly up. Yeah, you we guys were, almost lost your money. Nothing. Yeah. yeah, and then it was like, hey, Michael came to me and he said, look at if there's only one chance we have, or else we just call it a day because we'd been trying for several months to find money, and uh, nobody wanted to do it, and so he said, Ridley Scott. What do you is it, what do you think? And I said, well, you know, okay, if if that's the only shot, then take it or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't because of me saying that. He did it anyway. He sent Ridley the script uh, again, a sec, you know, a second draft or whatever it was then. And at the same day, Ridley had the day before had talked to Ivor Powell, his guy, and said. Do you, you remember that script of Android Dream? You know, where is that thing? Do we have that? And he wanted to see it again because he was in trouble and he needed a film. Yeah. And he liked that film. And so the same day that he read it, he got in the, the old one, he got in the mail the new one and with a new offer you know, from Michael Dealey. And so three days after that, he was in L.A. And, and, uh, <laughs> and the world of Hollywood in one day saw that he was having lunch with Michael Dealey at the Bel- at the Bel Air Hotel. Yeah. And uh that he was in town for that 
and we had offers from everywhere. Amazing. And, and to finance it. Well, it's funny, Mike, D- Michael Dealey, the producer, about the script and Ridley, he said, Ridley's not an easy person to seduce by writing, but this screenplay seduced him by the writing. And again, I, I'm not just because you're with us today. I, I think that really is the common dramaturgy here. Um, Ridley, at some point in the in the eight, seven or eight months you guys worked together, which I'm sure was push-pull, great, you know, in the beginning, maybe tougher as, as prep came around. But he he... He introduced you to heavy metal as a as a kind of visual language for the outside world. Do you remember that? Do you remember him? Oh, very well. Yeah, he said it's all really good. It's fine. But and this was after you know some weeks of confabulation, working five days a week together, talking, you know, speculating, and and then he said, Hampton, what's out the window? Right. And I said, Fuck, I don't know. <laughs> and dead birds, you know. And he said. I, he said something about heavy metal. I knew what heavy metal meant in terms of uranium, kind of, but I didn't know what that was. I wasn't privy to any of that kind of, you know, hip car, you know, comic books or whatever. And then he, uh, Mobius. And, and the next day, um, Ivor brought in the magazine. And then I also was in London at some point, and I found another magazine called Mechanismo, ah, which I love. Yeah. And then I found a children's book called Flat Cat. You know, you've got to have some inspiration visually, and I mean something in images, you know, in your head, and buildings, etc. And I began to see all that through heavy metal and through those other two, uh, is how that happened. So and I got rather excited. Then the other yeah. thing that kept holding us up, because... Really, really is very inspired, and he can inspire. And he would, you know, sometimes, some days, it was we're going to make a world of snow and cold. No, it's going to be tropics and vine and entropy, and you know, yeah. it, that, that that never stopped. The atmospheres kept changing. Well, what wasn't and, the, the you know, at some it was point, trains yeah. instead of cars, and you know, it was like ships. You know, we I mean did a lot of different things. And there was, the, and I would, and he was so inspiring that I would go, I would write these things, you know. The, the the soup uh-huh. the soup scene you know and I've heard you mention the soup scene and I know the conformist you know you mentioned snow I was thinking about how you talked about how the conformist the great snow sequence was in your well, mind. you're really up on this subject I, you know I I don't want to gush over you man but this movie did no cha- no you're not gushing but this but movie it, did change funny. my I mean, life that, that yeah. you're right it was the con- um, the snow scene came I mean I ended you know, with a scene that we didn't use, but it was right. but it was based on the. I mean, it was inspired by the Conformist. Well, the reason I'm sitting in the seat attempting to talk to you is the movie that you created, in the sense of a, a, a life, larger life view. And I'll spare you that poetry. I'm just saying that the reason I'm steeped in it, I actually think Blade Runner should be taught as a course. And I'm talking about the complete human model. This movie should be cut open. Forget 2049, which I want to get to a little bit, not too. Much much near the end but um i think this movie and and the 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 process from you literally having ten thousand dollars burning a hole in your pocket to trying you know there's not a human film artist alive who wouldn't learn from this process so that's part of it as well but also the movie i can still see it you know the first time i i saw it but anyway i don't that's why i want to save that subterfuge for you because i I only have you for limited time but i'm honored that you're here um you know merry christmas you guys are doing prep and apparently you go out to dinner and ridley's not at this dinner but is this when you learn that you're not long for the project oh yeah we got (laughs) merry christmas hampton (laughs) yeah it was christmas dinner uh and uh he dropped i mean 
he told me, I realized, you know, Brits are subtle. They didn't, you know, he never came out and said it, but he, I remember he told me after Ridley and I had an argument one time, um, I, I think it was Ridley was renting Michael Greskoff's house in Beverly Glen or Benedict Canyon or something. We was, I mean, there's a pool there. And we were talking, arguing about something, and I, and I kept thinking I, I always won the arguments because I, would just, I was so adamant about denying whatever it was he was requesting from me because I said it didn't make sense and here's the way I want to do it. And, and I had those arguments with him several times, and I'd always, he'd stop finally. And I mean, he's a very persuasive arguer, and he's more, you know, more capable than I am in that way, but yet I was so passionate or something. And he's English, and I'm an American dickhead. And, <laughs> and so, you know, I remember I, I, got, I went outside to just cool off after an, one of those arguments. I think it was about the chess game. And, uh, and then Ivor came out and kind of quietly said, you know, Hampton, I know me man. He was talking in dialect, you know, like Cockney. I'm just fooling around a little bit. Know me man. <laughs> and uh, he's not, you're not, gonna, you're not winning these arguments. I said, what do you mean I'm not winning? He, he said, if you don't do it, he'll get somebody who will. Mm-hmm. And I know that. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, let him get it. So that's fine with me. I don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. You know, all blah, blah, blah. And so, you know. Was, so was that BS, though? Was. Was, was that BS? Huh? Did you, was that BS? And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attack you on this. Did, did you give a shit? I mean, obviously, because later. Oh, no, I didn't even. I was too immature to. Right. To, to be in to, touch with that. Yeah. To, yeah. to be in touch with the consequences of what right. that meant. Right. God, right. I was. You know, and in fact, I just realized what I think what the argument was was about Deckard hanging over the roof, and I had in my version of that that he was he did not want Batty to drop him, mm. and he said, you know, we were we were talking about that scene, and 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 I and I was trying to come up with, you know, it's like I would my analog for that was. You know, hey, Batty, I'll suck your dick, but don't let go of my hand. And, and Ridley say, no, he's, he spits in his face. You yeah. know, he spits in Batty's face. I said, no, no, that that was the <laughs> yes, argument. Yes. I think. Well, and it was like, and yeah. and then and then when I saw the movie, I said, fuck, he was right. You know, it works. You know, I it just didn't seem realistic to me because I'm you know the method actor and all, and and I I just. Couldn't see it right then. How he said, and then remember really saying, "No, this is the movies. You know, this will work. You know, he's a hero. This guy, he's gonna say, fuh you, and you drop me.' You know, and so when I, th- I think that was the argument, and I was out of the pool, and he said, he's, you know, he'll. I said, let him write it himself. Yeah. You know, or whatever. I, you know, I didn't say that. I said, no, it's mine. I really thought that I was, you know, had some control, and then. Um, you know, so then sometime later, a week, two, I don't know, it, was, it must have been a month, I get that script in front of my plate, on my plate, and I open the page, and, and it had a, had a nice scene. It was a junkyard scene, off-world kind of, with a, with a bunch of, uh, you know, spent androids, dead ones, you know, piles of them, Auschwitz, and a, a kind of a bulldozer pushing them into a, a burning hole or something. It was scary. It was wonderful. And I liked it. Um, I didn't know what it was. I thought he was, I mean, sometimes I'd get offered other projects or people were proud of something, wanted me to read something for them. And I thought that's what that was. And I turned the page and it says a magnified eye. And it's my wow. opening scene right. of the, the interrogation right. of, 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 uh, of Leon. Leon. Yeah. And, and, yeah. Uh, and, I, and, I, and then yeah. I realized what this was. Yeah. 
and I and I started crying. I stood up and I said, "I'm out of here." Mm. And uh, then the next day, I went. Uh, we were in pre-production, and uh, I went to Columbia where we were for some reason, and uh, and I went in. I went and I confronted everybody, you know, and. That's gutsy. Uh, That's gutsy. I remember Sean Dealey saying to me, That's he gutsy. Said, I said, what about, I said, this guy can't write like I write. What are you doing? You know, or something like that. And he said, I remember Dealey said, you know, elegance is one thing. Making a film is another. Mm, you know, or something exactly, like that. Exactly. And I kind of started to understand, but I didn't. I wanted out of there. I uh, was speaking with Hampton Fancher. Cut to probably the second time you cried, which I find really ironic because you're talking about potentially the rooftop scene with De- with Harrison and Rutger being the camel's back getting broken. But then they brought you back for that scene, which I find really yeah. <laughs> interesting, which was the last night of shooting. And look, I don't the, the, the stories of the shoot are legion. You weren't there primarily, and I don't want to get into it. People can read it in Wikipedia. It, it's not, I've, I've gone, it's important. I don't want to say it's not important. It's just a different story. It's not the story I want to write with you today. But it's funny, they brought you back for that scene. Why did they bring you back for that scene in that moment, the last day of they shooting. Didn't. I was up in Carmel and I got a phone call from Michael Dealey and he said, I don't know whether you're mature enough to do this, right, but right. <laughs> something like that. And But we need, we're in, a, we're in trouble on the roof, you know. And so last, we have, we, have this, we have these actors, we have this location, and we need some stuff. And I was, I was triumphant about it. I said, see, you know, I told you, the, you know, you get f***ed up and and then I came down and they showed me a day's work. I mean, I sat in the screening room for hours and watched dailies. And, uh, and they wanted me to get up to speed with what they, you know, what they were going to do there on the roof, what they had to do. And all I contributed in that was, uh, you know, too, I mean, too bad she won't live. And, yeah. Yeah. That again. Yeah. It was, uh, that was, that was, that, that Gaff, I had yeah. some version of, of, of Rutgers, of Batty's, um, stuff but it wasn't it wasn't anywhere near as good as what Batty did I mean what Rutger did I've seen things you people wouldn't believe <laughs> attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten hours of gate All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. Time to die. When they brought you back to watch dailies, I'm thinking of you know Malcolm McDowell watching films in Clockwork Orange. Watching those dailies must have been slight torture. I mean, how did you sit through that, man? I, I hated it. I was I, I was in, wow. I remember Terry Rollins, who I didn't even know. You know, he's a big, berry guy, wonderful guy, editor. Um, was sitting or standing near me, 
at the end, and 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 I w- and I did cry, I think. And yeah. he put his hand on my head, which made me break, you know. Of course. I mean the tenderness of that, and I didn't even know him, but um, but he, I guess we were also intimate in a way because when you get. <laughs> You know, I mean, the triangulation of it, the apex being the film, we're all working toward the same, we're all in the same battle, you know. And uh, you get close in the foxhole, I guess. Beautiful. But the interior of that screening room was kind of large, but it was tiered upwards. And I was on the next level up. And there was a walk, you know, I mean, there was a, like a, a wide aisle towards the edge of it. And those, and they, they had finished, you know, Ridley and Michael had had gone up their aisle, which was below me, toward the exit, waiting for me to see what I was going to say. And uh, I walked. I knew they were down there. I could see their heads. And I walked along my upper aisle, not knowing that there was no, you know, that was, there was a fall off there. And I actually <laughs> fell off. Goodness. And I landed at their feet. Oh my gosh! And in a, a kind of a leg-breaking wow. fall, yeah, you know, yeah. but I didn't give a shit. I was so angry, you know. Yeah. I stood up and I said, "You guys, you know." And we went into a room, and I was—I had a little tirade, and uh, and because I hated it all. And then, and then, then Michael—that's when he said, or maybe Ridley said. Uh, you know, I see, I told you Hampton's not mature enough to do this, you know. Oh, that's right. And I said, I'm fucking mature enough. Yeah. I'll do it, you know. And yeah. I, I talked like that. And it was late at night, and I, I, I drove out of the Warner's lot. It was cold, kind of. And I remember in the top, I had a little speed support, and I drove to a, 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 a Connections house uh, in Laurel Canyon and got a gram of cocaine and then drove all the way to Topanga, where I lived, and... Uh, wrote all night wow and then came back the next day my version of that scene that's what robert mckee talks about in his book story uh, that's exactly the same technique no i'm only joking um so when you came back the next day <laughs> were you on the roof were you on the roof with the guys in the in the in this sh- no 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 i never saw yeah. i only saw i saw shooting once earlier uh um and it, and it turned out to be a time a very bad time for those, I mean, it's when Jerry Parencio and Bud York and, and Michael Dealey and, and, and Ridley were arguing yeah. in, on, this, on the back lot right. set, on the exterior of the street, you know, which was very small. It bothered me, but it was great to see. You know, here's all this, you know, it was 100 extras. It was, a, it was probably the chase scene for Zora, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. The yeah. glass crash. Yeah. And, and so it was all that, and I was, I was... I walked up behind Michael Dealey because they didn't know I was there and, and put my arms around him from behind. And he looked at me like he looked around to see who was holding him. And, they were, and I didn't know what they were doing, but they, it was one of the crucial moments of, the, of their, the war between those two guys and the other two about the money. And, and he said, not now, Hampton. Oh boy. Wow. <laughs> I was, uh, wow. I'm still embarrassed. That, There's yeah, nothing to be intrigue. embarrassed over. That the well, the you know the war of attrition that was going on in the set again has been well documented. But one of my favorite things is um, apparently the crew was 
revolting in different ways. And I guess one day Ridley Scott and maybe the script supervisor had T-shirts printed up that they wore, and it was the word xenophobia with an X through it. Right? It was brilliant. Uh, yeah, it's sort of like sort of like current times. I was just gonna, you know, you're reading bigger. my mind a little bit. I want to get into Act Three a little bit of our talk with you. You've been so gracious, man, with your thoughts and your time. So two two questions. One is a little coda to that, and then to get into the 2049 of it all, just a wee bit. I don't want to put you in an uncomfortable spot, but you know, Ridley, you know, this just in, Ridley tinkered a lot with the film, you know, director's cuts and, and studio cuts and all this BS that he had to go through, studios had to go through. Do you think it was overdone in the sense of, do you think he tinkered too much? Do you think we needed seven theatrical releases of the film? Well, I mean, it's easy to say that now, but I think going through the, I mean, it was a slippery process and yeah. it never let go of itself. You know, it was all, there was, because it was never right for Ridley, he had the, you know, when, when he got the time or the the wherewithal or the inspiration, I don't know what, you know, it just happened that way. I yeah. think there's seven versions. Yeah, the final cut, the uh, final cut, which is the, the final cut is the seventh cut. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. And so I, I don't know that that's happened before ever. I no. know one thing that's not happened before, I'm pretty sure it hasn't happened before, is that, that a failure film at the box office has a major re-release, a couple of them. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. That I don't think has happened. Uh, just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. Cut to the, <laughs> the last act of our talk today. 2012, you write The Shape of the Final Dog. You know, you're exercising some new thoughts maybe about this, the Blade Runner story. Look, man, you know, you're not a naive guy. That's the last thing I would call you. When you start writing 2012, something that may have a relationship to Blade Runner, the word sequel is going to come up into the thing. So there, there was something unsettled in you maybe. Is that too, am I putting that thought in your head? Why did you start, well, when know, did the ghosts was, come back? I never thought about another Blade Runner. I mean, the, the, in the intervening years before that, yeah. I mean, up till around 06 or so, about every two years, Ridley would give me a call and say, what do you think? You know, maybe we should try another. And I'd say, yeah, and we'd meet. And I mean, maybe twice, maybe thrice. That happened over a 20-year period. And after the meeting, and then I'd find out, you know, he'd call me or something, say, that ah, didn't work because we can't get the rights. You right, know, right. the rights are too, it's too complicated, and so it can't happen. I hate that but word. Get, I, we got excited about doing something. It had nothing to do with what finally happened. But right. then when I did hear that they were doing, you know, that they were going to do it and they were looking for a writer, um, I, that did coincide with the time I was writing those short stories. But it wasn't. I didn't have, I didn't write that story with a view to getting, worming my way in. It was, it was only because it came to mind because Blade Runner was in the air. And so when the, when Penguin said, hey, we want one more story because we, we thought we'd finished the book, I, you know, it was done. And then they said, oh, we like one more story. And then I, and I told them that idea of a Blade Runner story. And I thought, well, would that, is that good for the book to do that? And they said, that's great for the book. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. So I did it, but I did it, didn't do it. You know, I thought the book will come out. I mean, I didn't, it was two separate things. I knew that they were looking for a writer. I didn't know if they found one or not. I knew that no one had called me uh, and, and I didn't feel, you know, like I had any entree into any of it. I didn't, you know, people, friends, agents were saying, Hey, you should get involved in this. I said, how, what I'm going to knock at the door and say, Hey, you guys want me? No way. 
And so, you know, if they want me, they would have got me already. That, and I knew that that had gone on for about a year. I'd heard over several months that they were looking. And had they found anybody? I didn't want to know. It kind of hurt and kind of was humiliating, but I didn't admit, I didn't, I wasn't involved in my mind. I didn't think about it too much. Yeah, yeah. So then when that, I wrote that story, and all that story started to be, uh, it started out, it was because I had this lovely scene that we'd never, the soup scene, and I'd never, you know, it was always, that was burning a hole in my pocket. And we, and <laughs> really not even talked about it. You know, it's like, yeah. damn. You know, he wished he, he talked about he wished he used that scene as a, a prequel scene. You know, this is because that's how it started. He asked before I wrote that scene, he came up with the idea. He said, what did Decker do before he was doing Nexus? Was it Nexus 7? Nexus 6? Nexus 6. Nexus six. six. Yeah. Nexus 6. He said, what about the Nexus 5? And I said, wow, I like that. And, and then he said the magic words. He said, I see a little room, a, a cabin, a, 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 a burner, you know, with soup bubbling on. He just, that's all he said. That's beautiful. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I wrote that scene really fast. Steel heads. came in like. Steel, you came up with the term steel heads. Steel heads. Yeah. And I came in the next Love day. That. I mean, literally, I mean, I, did, I wrote that scene like all night or overnight or just about, maybe the weekend. But I came in and, and, I, and I remember standing in the hallway house and I gave it to him and and we stood there I, wa- I stood there and watched him read it it was about three pages four pages and and I saw that he ate that up yeah, you know? that's awesome. and I thought oh good this is going in the movie but it never did and so then that scene when I told that to Penguin I thought that was you know those were the legs for cool. this new body that I'd make and and so I just started writing and then I finished the story and this, that's the coincidence. I, I mean, I, it was a Friday afternoon. I was very happy with that story. And, and I called it The Shape of the Final Dog. And I just, like a half hour, I was still at the desk when the phone rang in the kitchen. And I went into the kitchen and picked up the phone. And would you accept, would, you know, would you be there an hour for a, uh, really Scott's trying to talk to you? And, and you said, who? Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Could this be this call? The serendipity, you know? How cool, so man. How cool. I said, yeah. And then I just kind of shook and got excited for the next, you know, until an hour. And I thought, fuck, he won't call. And, uh, and then the call came. And then he said, uh, hey, Hampton, you know. And I said, hey, Ridley, you finally hit the bottom of the barrel. Is that what happened here? <laughs> And then he took, it took a moment, then he started laughing, right, you know, right, and I right. laughed, and, right, I, funny. and he said, well, you got any ideas? And I said, just a minute, and I walked over, walked the phone over to the typer and sat down, and I read him the first paragraph, and he said, fuck me, can you come to London? Ah, oh, cheers, man, and, cheers. That's and I didn't have anything, I mean, that's just a scene. Well, sometimes it just ne- it takes that. That got yeah. into the movie, but it was yeah. still, it wasn't, it wasn't the story, it was in the plane that I thought of an idea that... You know. What did he want you to do in 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 London? Was it to literally spitball a, yeah, spitball. a, a treatment? Thought, the of, first thing that happened, I mean, I just told this to Ryan Gosling. I go down to the lobby to meet Red, and and I hadn't seen him for a couple of years. So it was, yow, you know, he had a leather jacket on, you know, God, it was, you know, and we hugged each other. And 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 then he said, we looked right in each other's eyes because he know, he, I mean, he's all business. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. when he's not being funny, and it's like, he looks at my eyes and he says, what are you thinking? And I knew what he meant. I mean, there's a lot of, we went through a lot of shorthand, he and I, over the years. And, and he meant, who, wh- you know, who am I thinking? That's, and I had thought of that on the plane. I thought, 
I got to have a guy. I didn't know what the story was. I really didn't. I, but I, I knew it was going to be a new Blade Runner. But I, I had to have a guy who was other, who didn't belong in the club of humanity. And, you know, a real outsider. And I knew it was Ryan Gosling. Mm. And so I, I was excited about that. So he thought I had. And I said, Ryan Gosling. And he, and he looked at me like totally receptive and understood. He said, you got it. You know, he said, he, and I thought, yeah, sure, right. You know, I mean, even if I'm able to write the fucking thing, who knows if Ryan will ever be around or anybody takes me seriously or, you know, but so I was really excited and happy when it turned when they told me that Ryan was going to do it. I'm, I'm guessing uh, Ryan would have rearranged anything to do it. I mean, any actor with a half a brain cell would have, but be that as it may, speaking with Hampton Fancher. So did he say go off and write young man or did, did you? No, say- no, no. No, right. no, no. It was, it was, uh, you know, it was the same process as before, right? Which is a great process, director, writer, and other people. I mean, there, was there, Michael there was Green a lot of help. there with you at that? No, I never. No, there was no Michael Green until I finished. A sh- I did a very short. I did a treatment first, and then there was again confabulations in England, and uh, you know disagreements and all that. Right. And uh, the good old, the I good old back. days, basically. Yeah, it was just you know redux. Uh, essentially, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then b- back to oh, not not so long, thank God. Although it was long, <laughs> uh, back to New York, and then wrote the script and handed in and and wrote a lot in L.A. too. I was in a hotel there, and I I'd, I'd write a bit at night, and then and then we'd confabulate during the day. Ridley wasn't involved, and um, and finally I finished a very short script. It was seventy nine or eighty pages. And and there was action lacking, they thought, and I didn't, and I disagree. You know, they wanted some other things, and uh, it wasn't it wasn't acrimonious. Yeah, it was great. It seems I like rational minds they, differ. We got along, yeah. and they were yeah. really helpful. Unlike, you know, I mean, that's the only time that ever happened. It was in so-called studio people <laughs> in the history of the history created. of the universe. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Uh, can, may, may I ask just to skip a stone here a little bit? Uh, speaking with Hampton Fancher, why do you think Harrison came back? to it why do you think he came back because for years as you know again this is the stuff of legion he wouldn't talk about it in interviews etc cetera, etc cetera. why do you think he came back to it well i think he came back because he's a he's, he's a man of quality he's a man who wants quality and it was it's really good i mean he said it you know he he said this is one of the best things he'd ever seen uh it was because he loved it uh Somebody asked him at Comic Con, uh, is you know, because they were joking. Somebody in the audience about you know he's done now a few reprises. You know, is that what the word? Yeah. And um, does he and, and does he have an idea that he's going to even do more? And he said he wants to do every one of them. You know, but but I mean he was joking. But right. He, no, I know I, yeah. he liked the idea. I mean, I, I, you know, he didn't for a long time. It was kind of famous that he didn't like the experience and didn't necessarily love the film right um but the sacred cow of it all i mean you got you're slaughtering your own sacred cow and i'm I'm being critical (laughs) you know did you think of that going into writing did you think how much of harrison do i put in this not knowing if he even wants to do it or had he ever along the way been confabulating uh, to use your word with ridley like I would get involved if you ever did something. I mean, did did that ever come into your mind? No, How? I don't. I I I was very frightened of that because I thought I did write it. I wrote it for, I wrote it for Ryan. Right. I mean, I had Ryan in mind. Right. And I wrote it for Harrison. Right. And I wrote it for Ridley. 
I mean, literally, you write. For, I mean, you know, like you write for an amorphous audience out there somewhere. You're writing jokes for a certain kind of people laugh at or whatever. But I was thinking, I mean, not not on purpose. It just happened liminally that I was right. I mean, in terms of Ridley, I was thinking, ah, oh, Ridley, aren't this is good for Ridley? No, this because I've I've been around long enough now and seen enough Ridley Scott film that I kind of knew something about what he would embrace, but. But also Harrison, and but I was frightened. I don't. I've, I've, I hadn't thought of this till this second. I was <laughs> nervous about what happens if because most more than likely Harrison won't do it. Right. And then and then who the hell plays Harrison? <laughs> and then I finally Sorry. talked myself into oh, there's great actors out there who would love to play that role, and it'll be totally acceptable to a new audience well, that there's an as a, Decker, an, an though, older Decker as as yeah. yeah. Interesting. And That's then, gutsy, though. That's gutsy, then, man. And then Harrison read it, and then, uh, even before he did, I was told that they were going to give it to him, and they were totally confident that he that you know he's an actor. He's going to go crazy for this role. He's just a good role, and it was it was a great role. I mean, it was like what happens to him and what he turned into, etc. It was beautiful, and uh, and better. You yeah, know, it's an yeah. it's a. It, it stands on the shoulders of the first one, but it reaches higher. It demands more. Rutger Howard has waxed poetic about you specifically in many ways. Not that Harrison hasn't, but I wondered, has Harrison ever given you feedback on, on the work? Like directly saying, hey, you know, it's lovely. No. No, no I did. I'd never talked to him. I mean, until just now, a couple of weeks ago, I said, it's funny, I said, he came up to me and said something nice. You know, I said, oh, God, it's good to see you. And, haven't seen each other in a long time. And I said, what do you mean a long time? I never saw you before. I said, yes, you did. We <laughs> said, we and I said, I don't remember. And he said, yeah. And then I said, I mean, I was going to argue with him, but yeah, I said, okay. And then I said, but I did write you a fan letter. And he <laughs> said, I never got it. And I said, I never sent it. And he said, and he gave that wry Harrison Ford look like he knew me all his life. And right. he said, that figures. Uh, you know? <laughs> yeah, last a, a bit, you know, uh, I should have asked you this first, and I purposely now, I think I didn't. It's something I asked Buck Henry about The Graduate. Are you sick of talking about Blade Runner? And you've got to be honest. Are you sick of being asked about it? Because I know there's an amazing documentary out on you now. I know that. And I'm thinking, I invited this incredible artist, and I'm going to drill down on something that's give, gives has given me goosebumps for 30 years, but is he going to hate it? Are you sick of talking about Blade Runner? No, not at all. I mean, because it's a it's a discovery process for one thing, and of course, there's you know, I'm the center of the. It's like, am I sick of Q and A's? Yeah, if I'm the Q, I am. But if I'm the A, I'm not. <laughs> the know, a. I'm up on stage. <laughs> right. It's easy to do those Q and A's, but I I would never attend one. You know. Right. But it's it, so that part, but but it it is a it is a, you know, one is seeking for you know. You know, it's fun. I mean, what we're, what you and I are doing now. I mean, it's 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 kind of a a, a demanding little thrill. You know what I mean? Like, shit, <laughs> I don't know what the answer to that. But you but you search around. It's like a quiz game or something. It's fun. But the only thing that gets that's not good about it, apropos to kind of what you were getting at, is that if in passing those you know not you know this is serious kind of. That's why we're having fun. But people who say, oh, that's my favorite, you know, and they yeah. want to, you know, those, yeah. that kind of stuff, which is fine, but you don't, you know, you want to get away from that, you know, I don't like to do that, hear people tell me. Why? You know, Why is an, that? An anonymous people saying, 
things because I don't feel only because I feel guilty. I mean, I really do. I don't feel worthy of their recognition. And I mean, who cares? And it, you know, and all that. But at the same time, there was a little tinge of me that you don't understand, lady or Mister or kid or whatever. You, that, that that film is not me. It's like everybody, you know. You should tell that to the grips as well, you know. It, it, it's and, a documentary uh, of everyone's life, yours included. I mean, I understand it's not, Blade Runner's not a documentary of Hampton Fancher, nor is it a documentary of Phil Dick, obviously. You know, the film is babies away from him and you. But, you know, uh, it, it is it is your home movie in a, in a strange way, you know. But I understand sycophantia is one thing, but... Well, I never understood that either. People, I know, there was an interview with Ridley, uh, uh, in a magazine years ago and they were talking asking him about Blade Runner and at the end of the interview and then he said something like you got to give it, you got to lay it to Hampton he said or something like that yeah he's you know he, and I went what, it, what? But, he know, always leaves David it at Peoples your feet and I always said yeah. yeah but it's like but the architect and the and the designer the the god was Ridley you know Ridley made and of course, other people too. I think Vangelis is extremely important, I, and everybody else is too. You know, Cronin with. But. Did Ridley ever consider hopping into the director's chair? Did you ever talk about that with him for twenty forty nine? Oh yeah, he, no, I, he he was the director. It wasn't until after, you know, quite a bit after I'd finished. Ridley wrote me a letter um, a month after I turned in the script. He said, "Okay." Uh, I love this script, but we're going to open it up and I'm going to go fishing, meaning he's going <laughs> to look for another writer, right. and he wanted to let me know that. Mm. And uh, and I love that. I saved that letter. It's so, so nice. He was going to direct it for a while, and then uh, I don't remember. I can't remember the timeline, but but then it was, um, yeah. And when Denis and, Vill uh, Villeneuve, who I think is one of the great modern filmmakers, stepped in, did, was there any anticlimax there for you, or did you say, "Hey, yeah, let's this will be"? Oh no, I was like, I was so. I'm a I'm a Denis Villeneuve fan. He's fascinating. And, I, yeah. and in Cindy's, you know, that which kind is, of muscle and that kind yeah, of vision, yeah. he's very much in that vein, in vein. And he's you know, he's like, I thought he was fucking perfect. Yeah, yeah. And I and I think he is. I was like, I was thrilled. Did you go back and read your original screenplay? Not the original first draft. Did you go back and watch? Blade Runner before embarking on the second one, or did you have Tabula? No, no, no. I was afraid. I was so so intimidated by that. It was it was. I don't remember organically anymore what it was like, but I I know the words. I was terrified. I mean, that was just. I mean, I'm like a guy with no legs who's got to jump over a high bar. Come on. It was tough. Did you at least listen to the Vangelis soundtrack? Who again is another unsung hero in all this i mean and when you listen to that now does it put you on that car going? i don't listen to it very much because uh, it makes me weep i, man. I, I don't i, I don't want to extend myself into that for some reason but 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 it's beautiful i i i think vangelis is not only the unsung he's the unspoken success of the thing otherwise the romance of blade runner for one thing basically the romance I mean, the deep romance that never found its way into it somehow did because of Vangelis. Vangelis puts the, is the heart of that film, I think. You've done a man's job, sir. Ah, that's what, that's what, that's what I came in that morning for after that night of the Coke. The great white powder in Topanga Canyon. That was, uh, that was, I was glad that that line remained. 
Hampton, all the best, man. We're pulling for you, and I can't wait to see. The, Thank the, the, you. We'll the, talk again. We'll talk again, man. Next time we do this, <laughs> next time I come up to Brooklyn, I'd love to do this in person, chat about nothing in particular. Sure. Feel until, free. Until the next time, my friend, be well, and all best to you and whatever you do. Thank you. Thanks, Hampton. Be well. Bye. You've done a man's job, sir. I guess you're through, huh? Finished. It's too bad she won't live! But then again, who does? Wow. Wow. (laughs) If you did a chart of that talk, as you would almost, you know, a spiritual uh, horoscope-based chart, start with Philip Dick, uh, take a left turn at Joseph Conrad, uh, a, a little jog through William Burroughs, uh, moonwalk through Herman Mel- Melville and Charles Bukowski. Uh, say hi to Frank Herbert when Ridley Scott is prepping Dune. Bob Kane popped in there. Batman popped in there. And another person I want to mention who didn't pop in there, but I want to pop this person in there is Paul Salmon. Paul wrote an incredible book, which would be the textbook of the course that I would teach on the making of Blade Runner. It's called Future Noir, The Making of Blade Runner, released 1996. And that is the textbook that this is piloted through in many ways. And I've never met Paul, but you've done a man's job, Paul. This would be an amazing course. Blade Runner, I I could teach it. And I don't mean that in vanity. I mean, this has magnetism. It is the highs, the lows, the loves, the reclamations, the suicides, the vanity, the cocaine, the narcissism, the glory, the future, the past, the present, the vision, the madness, the literature, the photography, the performance, the sounds, the skies, the cars, the yins, the yangs, the Los Angeleses, the infertility, the uh, Gotham City of life how do you get a film made how do you get anything made all it takes is one person to believe in you Hampton Fancher thank you thank you Hampton Fancher for going through that all again with us it was an honor I can't wait to listen to it again. (laughs) It's going to be part of the class I teach. Murmurradio.com. Every week live, whupfm.org. Evergreen. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, where fine podcasts are not sold but found. Thank you for listening. This was a thrill. Couldn't have been here without you. Wouldn't have been here without you. See ya.